Hey everyone, uh, it's Spencer, the Lonely Photon, just by myself, well, not really by myself, but no Andy or Ty this week, or this episode. Doing something a little different, you know, as you know, as Ty routinely harasses me about, I'm a movie guy, and I've always kind of wanted to have a segment, either on the show or related to the show, where I pick the brains of other people who know a lot about movies and love movies and just kind of want to talk about them. We're doing that now. Uh, this is our first episode, and uh, I brought along with me to start us off um, Emmett Booth, aka Poor Quentin, uh, from Not a Pod, the premier A Song of Ice and Fire podcast. Emmett, how are you doing? Real good. Thanks so much for having me on. I've been uh, looking forward to it since uh, Ty uh, sent me in your direction. Yeah, no. Um, so. If you all know of any, like, there's a lot of film podcasts out there, uh, some great ones like Cinephiliacs. Um, this one is probably closest to Cinephiliacs, but this time around there's real no gimmicks. It's not really an interview. It's just, you know, two people kind of talking about movies. Um, so uh, I, I'll get us started out. Um, so um, the first question I want to ask, and I, I swear this won't be an interview, but just to get us started. Um, have you watched anything special recently, either for the first time or a rewatch? I I recently uh, rewatched uh, Umbrellas of Cherbourg for the first time in a long while. Oh um, yes, which uh, I think is is perversely aging better than a lot of the the uh, the new wave movies of that age, even though it was kind of scorned at the time. Yeah, um, it starts just so sweet and gets gradually emotionally emotionally complex as it goes. And yes, the it's it's so silly in some ways, but just so so thoroughly committed. So. Yeah, that was I. I just put it on in the background for like I was just cleaning up during the day, and but I ended up stopping what I was doing and just uh, watching it completely absorbed. Yeah, no, I um, I, I saw that movie for the first time when I was out of high school. I was in Colorado for a month with my parents, and it was a part of Colorado where there's like no internet, uh, or like sure. not good internet. Uh, all my friends are you know hundreds of miles away, so. I just like I just sat down and just like binged the canon that month, and uh, that mm-hmm. was one of the ones that I watched. And even on like a tiny phone screen, that movie absolutely blew me out of the park. Um, you're right; it's just a it's a really gorgeous movie. Um, you know, Demi is obviously you know one of the best uh, filmmakers in terms of how he used color, and uh, the way that that movie sort of presents this really cheery, you know, sung through style at the opening where you know the whole movie's sung through it's got all these beautiful pastel colors and as it goes on it gets more complex and more heartbreaking and it ends on this absolutely devastating finale um yeah no i i i recommend that movie to pretty much everyone in fact i became really insufferable when la la land came out because oh sure i was i was just like i was just like you need to watch this movie instead and all my friends who were like also just in high school were just vaguely annoyed with me for that um do you like uh young girls of rochefort the other big one i do i'm less familiar with it this was like my third or fourth time with umbrellas i've only watched young girls once so uh i'm I've, i i remember certain sequences really well uh i'd have to revisit it what's what uh what, what stands out uh from that one for you um so i'm actually not as big of a fan of that one as most people it's really good it's just like People treat it pretty rapturously. I've seen it twice. The first time was, uh, you know, by myself. The second time I actually saw it in the theater, uh, Brattle mm. Theater in Boston. 
And that was a really fun experience since watching Demi movies with the crowd. Uh, especially that one is great because of like all the axe murderer stuff and <laughs> the audience losing their shit when Gene Kelly shows up. Oh, sure, and, I'll bet. Yeah, that was great. Um, but yeah, no, I've, al- I've always found that one... I don't know. Umbrellas is such like an elemental story. It's, you know, very straightforward. It's, you know, you got these very... This almost like archetypal characters and story and young girls is a lot messier and a lot you know more sprawling it's got like eight or so different characters and i've never i've never been able to get quite as into it as everyone else although there are some like amazing moments and numbers in it yeah sure and there's like i mean there's a a pinball effect i love to umbrellas where there's really simple perfect bright archetypes get gradually more complex just by bouncing off each other because there's no real villain in umbrellas even though there's it seems like it keeps seeming like there's about to be like oh the mom is the villain oh the the handsome suitor is the villain but they never really are because their motives keep getting explored as you go and i just i love that that you know that slow confident storytelling is just great yeah yeah no and it you know it starts off so like rapturously you know the first i mean it's again it's sung through but the first big number in that movie uh it's like so happy and upbeat and then there's not really any numbers in the movie that are that um or musical moments in that that are that like joyous so uh before we before we uh started recording we knew we were going to talk about kubrick for a bit uh since eyes wide shut's one of your favorite movies and i have a lot to say about that one so uh talk to me a bit about eyes wide shut oh sure that that movie is I think more than any other movie I've seen is one where if you ask a hundred different people what that movie was about, you'll get a hundred different answers. Absolutely. Ranging, you know, through varieties of frustration with it. And it's it's so oddly intimate. You know, it seems that Kubrick himself shot it, and it's set in these really just kind of, like, cozy, if also kind of terrifying interiors. And, you know, the New York it exists in is so far removed from anything resembling reality, which was a sticking point for a lot of people. But in Kubrick's hands, that's it's kind of oddly sweet in a Wes Anderson-y kind of way, where it's like, this is his little diorama of what he remembers of America. And, but also it's, I mean, it's, it's like a lot of Kubrick movies in that it gets distilled and remembered for a handful of set pieces, which happens to, you know, most movies. But with Kubrick especially, things tend to get, like, you know, popped out for cultural references and easy, like, conversational. Like, oh, Eyes Wide Shut is the movie with the orgy, even though, you know, the orgy is, like, 5% of Eyes Wide Shut. It's, you know, it's a powerful sequence, but it, it gains its power from it being clearly a version of every other scene in the movie. Yeah, and you know, also it's, 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 like, the pivot point of the movie. Right, exactly. Yeah. Like, you have the, the opening you know, a sequence as as Ziegler's party, and then the orgy is another version of that down to, you know, pretty much every little conversational detail, just with everything inverted. Even though the opening ball is actually sexier despite no one having sex. Yeah. Uh, Eyes Wide Shut fascinates me a lot. Um, I think if I were to do a Kubrick ranking on the show, it would probably be number three, but that's only just... It's only because he's got some fucking amazing movies. Um, it's like any other filmmaker's best movie. Uh, but no, Ice White Shut really fascinates me because the final conversation in that movie, to me, is, you know, you talked about how, like, everyone's got their own interpretation of that movie and, like, you know, a hundred different people can come away with uh, something different from it. To me, that last conversation is kind of, like, unlocking the entire movie. Uh, I-, I can't quote it exactly, 
but it's when Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise are talking in the shop together, and they're sort of discussing um, what, you know, what's transpired over the past couple of days. And they sort of, like, both cagely admit that they've been lying to each other. Um, what is it? I think Nicole Kidman has a, a line that's like, uh, one night is never the whole story, which to me sort of reveals that this sort of nocturnal odyssey Tom Cruise had, which uh, isn't isn't an aberration for him. Um, as you can see, you know, in the first scene, when he's introduced, he has, like, a, two women around his arms. Um, and... Then he fires back with, well, dreams are never just dreams, referring to when he, uh, when Kidman kind of taunts him by saying that she had a dream where she was being, like, you know, fucked by a sailor. And, you know, they both kind of reach a stalemate from that and then agree to live their life, um, what is it, just ignoring this lie. Because, like with, with Tom Cruise earlier, where he discovers this possible conspiracy and chooses to believe that there was no conspiracy because otherwise he'll go insane. Same is true of their relationship. Yeah, I think you, you hit the nail on the head that it's, they're not even owning up to the reality of what happened because they don't know what the reality of what happened is. Yeah. And we cut right over Tom Cruise's explanation of what he thinks the reality is. Like his big confession, we see him cry and sob when he discovers the mask, but then Kubrick cuts over his actual explanation. So we don't even know what he ultimately thinks happens. So what they have to own are their fantasies, like their projections and desires about what they kind of wish happened. Because it's not that Alice ever slept with anybody else. It's that she wanted to for a minute and Bill never knew. And so you have this whole movie where it's not even that Bill wants to sleep with someone else. It's that he wants to want to sleep with someone else. Like he wants to experience desire and the great joke of the movie is that he really doesn't. Like, he's not actually that horny. Like, when he, he meets this, the sex worker Domino, she asks, so what do you want to do? And he just asks, well, what do you recommend? <laughs> because he's yeah. this perfect little consumer boy who's never actually had to think about what he wants. It's always just there. Yeah, no, that, that's, kind of a, that's, that's kind of a thorough line through a lot of Kubrick characters where they just kind of go through life, uh, steal a line from Matt Lynch, you know, they're programmed men, basically. Um, obviously people think of A Clockwork Orange when you think of, you know, programmed characters, but I always think of Barry Lyndon, um, because Barry Lyndon is amazing movie about a guy who just kind of stumbles his way through life. He, he gets into trouble because he wants to fuck his cousin and then he just accidentally becomes royalty and then loses it. Um, you get the sense that he never made an actual decision in his life. Uh, just kind of stumbled from one situation to another. Um, that's why I think a lot of Kubrick movies, uh, this isn't really a novel observation at this point, but a lot of Kubrick movies are a lot funnier than people make them out to be. Like, I saw Barry Lyndon in a theater, it's my second time watching it, and, like, everyone in the crowd was dying laughing. And I don't think that was, like, derisive or anything. It's a really funny movie. Oh, yeah. Structurally, even his more harrowing late movies are basically comedies. Like yeah. Eyes Wide Shut is a gigantic joke surrounded around the fact that not only does Bill not get laid, but he actually doesn't want to. And that's not what this really was about for him. And The Shining is a, is a giant joke on Jack right up to the final shot of him, you know, frozen in the ice. And yeah, Barry Lyndon is, is tremendously funny because he, he just backs his way into everything and everyone around him keeps insisting, no, 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 that's, that's not how we do things. 
while they transparently backed their way into whatever they have and are conning everyone around them. And they're just like, he's just a generation behind you guys. That's all this is. And they just, they can't, they're such hypocrites about about how he's rising to power. Barry Lyndon I love because I, I always imagine Barry as like the the 18th century equivalent of like a Instagram fitness influencer, <laughs> just like a room temperature IQ guy who just like just kind of stumbles his way onto success through like good looks and just like accidentally meeting the right people. Um, it's Southland Tales, basically. That's you know yeah. he's, he's just a uh, uh, yeah complete surface and. I mean, Barry Lyndon has a lot in common with Eyes Wide Shut in that way, and it's this guy kind of stumbling around people with actual motivations, realizing that he doesn't kind of... Because, yeah, I mean, the one moment in both cases, in Barry Lyndon and Eyes Wide Shut, that they actually do kind of act, it's a, it's connected to mercy. You know, Barry shoots in the ground rather than actually, you know, kill, kill Bullingdon. And Bill does save Mandy at the start of Eyes Wide Shut, and it seems kind of like maybe it's her, even if it's only pageantry, who gives him mercy at the end. And in both cases, that still doesn't, like, do anything or, like, you know, change their character arc. It just kind of happens, and then Barry gets shot anyway, and Bill has to go home anyway. And yeah, it's like Clockwork Orange, like, when he's going in the circle in the jail. It's just, like, you didn't actually... And you had these, these moments, but they didn't actually completely change your life or solve what happened to you. And yeah, there's, there is something bleakly yeah, funny about that. Cause in Barry Lyndon, the way everything keeps amounting to nothing. Like the duel was fake, and your name is fake, and everyone just keeps dying randomly. And it's not, you know, it's an arc of rags to riches, but it's not really like, you know, self-transformation. That's not actually there. Yeah, no, I do love that about Barry Lyndon, how he doesn't really have a character arc, or even a character. It's just, you know, some person who is fumbling around in a situation that is both far greater than him and entirely worthy of him. <laughs> yeah, that's well put. I mean, Starship Troopers, too. You know, this this sense of uh, this, like, raw, like, meat being transformed by this, this complete, like, intricate grinder around him where it seems like he's following his desires, but, yeah, he's he's just... He's, he's being led along through a maze, which is, you know, the... The Shining is kind of his most literal film in that regard because it's it kind of strips away what the the rest of of the lot of the other films are about and says this is what this is what my protagonists are they're little they're little you know rats in a, in a maze waiting for cheese to show up and it just never does. It it's funny to me because continuing with Kubrick, my favorite Kubrick movie is Paths of Glory, um, mm. and that one I think kind of gains its power. Part of it is. I almost want to say, like, metatextual, because Kubrick's movies, I want to say from, I mean, Strange Love Onward, technically, but, like, I haven't seen Lolita, so it might be Lolita Onward, but uh, Strange Love Onward, but really, like, starting around A Clockwork Orange, they take on this severe misanthropy, like, this really, really just intense distrust of humans, um, you know, Kubrick just sees us all as, you know, like you said, rats in a maze. Uh, Passive Glory, for me, is partially powerful because of what came after, because Passive Glory is his most angry and humanistic film. For those of you who haven't seen Passive Glory, Passive Glory basically follows, it's in World War I, and this troop is ordered basically on a suicide mission. And, you know, a lot of it is for the benefit of this one commanding officer. But eventually, when it's very clear that it's a suicide mission on the ground, the troop just refuses to advance, and... They basically, what happens is, is that as punishment 
three members of the troop get selected for the firing squad as like sort of a symbolic punishment. And it follows a lot of it follows Kirk Douglas, who is a lower ranking officer um, than the one sending the people to the firing squad, but higher ranking than the underlings trying to save their life and trying to like argue for their life. And what makes this movie so interesting is that a a later Kubrick might've portrayed Kirk Douglas's character as an idiot or the underlings as idiots. And that the underlings do feel a little undignified, but it's not as bad as what would come. But Paths of Glory is a really angry movie, a really didactic movie in a good way. And it, it it's unlike any other Kubrick movie that would follow since this movie genuinely doesn't hate people. It hates, you know, the military. It hates the institution of the military. And that is uh, fascinating for Kubrick since, you know, Kubrick, again, was a misanthrope for most of his life. Yeah, I know. I agree. I think Paths of Glory is, like you were saying, it it it, it has a emotional foundation you can almost carry over as subtext to the later films. Mm. Like, this isn't, you know, they don't really address the the weight of sacrifice in the way Paths of Glory does, especially at the ending with the singing. And, you know, it, that, mm. that wrenches your heart in a way that the later films don't even attempt to do. It's it's strange almost, and it feels like Paths of Glory emotionally feels like it should be a film from an old man. You know what I mean? Like, it feels almost like a work you build to. Like, De Palma didn't start with Casualties of War, and Spielberg didn't start with stuff like, you know, Amistad's not that great a film, but it's like, you know, that's not the movie you start with. It's it's kind of strange almost that Paths of, Paths of Glory came before Clockwork Orange and The Shining, which, like, in tone and temperament feel almost from, like, a younger, more sarcastic man. Kubrick had, like, a weird Benjamin Button thing in some ways where, like, yeah, his, his misanthropy was definitely strong, but it also felt like the misanthropy of, you know, someone Alex DeLarge's age. You know, it felt like this this uh, this retreat from the world that was oddly at contrast with with stuff like uh, Paths of Glory. And yeah, I love, you know, I the the, in, the intricacy of the later works draw me in a lot. And a lot of the yeah. secondary characters, I think, do still have some of the humanity of the earlier works. But yeah, there's there's no question that he his main vessel at a certain point, starting in the 60s, was a blank slate, purposefully. And like all, all his protagonists are just shorn, like the opening of Full Metal Jack and making that very plain. Like, okay, here here goes their individuality. It's all gone now. I'm breaking them down to start afresh. And there's an exhilaration to that, but it's also like, okay, so we're not really dealing with people anymore. Yeah. Yeah, we're dealing with more abstract concepts here on out. I, I want to say with Full Metal Jacket, uh, I watched Full Metal Jacket with someone who would eventually go on to join a military school. And he said that that sequence where they're shaving their heads is accurate because according to people who you know go to military school, that's sort of the moment when you realize that this is for real, that this is actually happening. I don't know. I've always found that kind of interesting. For sure. I mean, there's Full Metal Jacket has that, yeah, really arresting opening where you get the sense of being part of a hive mind like like The Shining or 2001 in its way. Um, I've read, you know, several interesting takes on the second half. It's, you know, in terms of how it feeds in and out of the first half, it's never never been quite as convincing uh, to me as, as some of his other, other late works in the same way that Clockwork Orange, I think, hasn't aged especially well in certain respects compared to something like Barry Lyndon. I rewatched that one, actually, a couple days ago, uh, just in prep. And there's the structure of it I still admire in terms of setting up just, you know, having Alex pin you in place and doing horrible things and singing and then having Alex pinned in place watching horrible things while music plays. I do I, I do appreciate the irony of it, but it's it's so 
on the nose. Yeah. Uh, a Clockwork Orange, yeah. So I want to say that this all comes with the, the disclaimer that there's about 20 minutes of this movie that I really love. And it's when Alex is in prison. And it it, it sort of feels more like Kubrick's like late, late work where it's very sarcastic and mean-spirited and kind of bleakly funny. You know, in the same way that Barry Lyndon or Full Metal Jacket would be. Um, one of my favorite, my probably my favorite joke in the movie is when he's like reading the Bible and smiling and everyone's pleased with him for that. And then it sort of cuts to him imagining himself as one of the people whipping Jesus while he's on the cross. But yeah, Clockwork Orange is definitely my least favorite Kubrick. Um, I've, I've gotten many arguments with people because I really do not like that movie. I, I think that, you know... You said structurally there are some very admirable ironies in it, but that structure is also a downside because it, it's everything is very obviously A to B. Like, the first half of the movie is, here's Alex wronging a bunch of people. The second half is, here is those same people wronging Alex. And the second half in particular, it's just like one after the other, after the other, after the other. And it Kubrick made movies that a lot of people would say are boring, and I don't think Barry Lyndon is boring. I don't think, you know, Eyes Wide Shut is boring. But I do think that, like, after, like, the fourth group of people starts pummeling the shit out of Alex in the second half, it does get genuinely kind of boring. There aren't many mysteries to Clockwork Orange, really, which is kind of surprising in rewatch, because, like, that's the whole Kubrick appeal. That's the whole late Kubrick appeal, especially. That's the point of The Shining and Eyes Wide Shut, is they're just mazes, and you throw yourself in, and you see what you find. And Clockwork Orange doesn't, it's, yeah, it's it's very exposed, and everything is on the surface. And I, yeah, I like that 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 uh, bible scene too because it kind of gets at kind of gets at the point kubrick is trying to get at, at, at the movie which is that you don't control how people project yourself into your art like here's the bible and yeah you're supposed to think about jesus but no one can stop alex can think from thinking about the centurion and the centurion's in there right and someone has to play him so to speak in the story so it's alex and i, I like that that quality is something i like and something that i think uh you know adds up to the film's best moments. But yeah, the second half, the, the drag is pretty apparent. And that's in real contrast to Eyes Wide Shut, which also has a second half that is just a complete mirror version of the first half. But I think works a lot better because it's Bill, Dr. Bill, with his punny name, going back through every situation, going, oh, that's what that actually was. And those are the costs of what seemed sexy and mysterious by night. And it's all just kind of tawdry and sad and commercial and he's just like, I don't want part of any of this. And that, for me, that resonates a lot more than just being pummeled again and again because you were shitty. With with Eyes Wide Shut, there's there's this, like, really kind of fascinating um, ambiguity to what happens in the second half, too. Like, he, he discovers all the stuff, and he's unraveling this mystery. And then there's um, the Sidney Pollack conversation, which is another sort of unlocking point for the movie. Whenever people talk shit about that scene, I get frustrated because, like, people say, oh, he's just explaining what happened. And it's like, no, that's the best scene. I love it. Yeah, it's like, is he, though? Because he's like, I mean, sure, you can read it as he's offering perfectly plausible explanations for what's been going on. But in in a way, he's really just trying to convince Tom Cruise, like, what is it to, hey, listen, just believe these lies or else your life is going to get worse. And, you know, you can see Tom Cruise kind of silently realizing, like, well... I have two options. One, I choose to believe this, just as I choose to believe that my relationship is a healthy and normal one. Um, or, two, I can believe this and go insane, because, you know, we're highest aspects of society are controlled by insane perverts. 
them's your choices. And yeah, it's it's such a delicately written scene because he doesn't Victor Ziegler, he doesn't convince Bill that that's that his version of events would happen is what happened, but he's not really trying to. He's just offering a a plausible enough explanation so the movie can end. And it's I mean there's the great meta in that he's played by a film director. <laughs> So he's, you know, he's just like literally stepping forth to wrap up the plot. But yeah, he's just everything. Every sentence in that scene is suppose I told you, you know, that's how he starts everything because he's just setting up a fantasy because that's all Eyes Wide Shut ultimately ever amounts to. And yeah, the, the, the second half when he's going back and he's some scenes are him finding out clues about the conspiracy, but some scenes are just him like he calls up the the daughter of the dead man he like you know who flirts with him early in the movie because he's like oh man maybe you know she was into me maybe i'll finally get my rocks off he, he calls her and then his uh her fiance who's just a younger version of bill picks up the phone and says hello and bill just like puts down the phone and just like sits back in his chair and it's this perfectly quiet small scene that has nothing to do with the orgy or the bigger mechanics but it's just it's showing you the same stuff which is that you know, everything he thought he wanted and was just about to get is just completely brushes past his fingers. There's always someone calling or interrupting and he he never quite gets there. And I just I love I love that structure where everything just kind of dissolves as, as he as he reaches for it. Um, uh, moving on from Kubrick, I, I saw I was looking at your letterbox favorites uh, list and I saw uh, Beau Travail also and I also really love that movie. I, I, I remember in I took a a ethics class freshman year of college and uh one of the case studies we had was billy budd uh specifically not not the novella but actually the uh ustinov adaptation um and i always kind of wished that we watched this instead um since this i don't know that it, it hits all the same beats as billy budd but it sort of gets at the um you know in classic denis fashion it gets at all like the psychosexual stuff underneath the yeah, abode is fascinating for me and is again it's like a Daniil, I think, like Kubrick, gets into, like, weirder and wilder territory the, the more she goes. But Beau Travail is kind of like Paths to Glory, and that's kind of an anchoring film for what all the stuff is actually about. And I I love it's... it's, it's it, I love how it's... There's so many, like, you know, weighty themes and projections you can talk about with colonialism and the body and the other yeah, psychosexual tensions. But it's, it's all conveyed so gracefully and not heavily like you know we talked about with clockwork orange just how heavy the irony is and just like every scene's like i get what this is gonna be and both revive by the time you understand what you're watching the scene has moved on and it's just this constant constant exhilaration and just a a real love for for kineticism and and poetry and dance and and paintings and there's all these different art forms show up in it and that that you know that collides in a kind of sad, beautiful way with the actual story being told, which yeah, you know, poured over from Billy, but is a really kind of sad, unsparing one. Yeah, I I, I remember you know the the sequence where they have to hang what is it um, the young person in Billy, but it's been a while since I watched that movie, and it's this it's almost like something out. I mean, going off the Ustinov adaptation, since that's what I remember. Um, I don't even remember if we read the novella in class, but I do remember that. You know, it has a very passive glory like setup where it's very point by point by point, and it's just increasingly desperate as it goes on. And Botrevai, you know, it kind of strips it down to the elements there, um, where uh, Denis Levant's character, who's the equivalent, doesn't even get killed. He just gets, you know, disrespected and struck. And then he, uh, you know, drives his, you know, underling slash crush uh, off into the desert to die. 
I don't know. That's that's kind of why a lot of Denis films, the ones I've seen, I'm not an expert on her, but the ones I've seen do feel like they take, um, you know, complicated or complex concepts and then sort of strip them down to like the sort of psychosexual tension boiling underneath. It's always about how it manifests on the body and how it manifests erotically in a lot of her movies. But after Boat Travail, she made Trouble Every Day, which is this wonderful horror film about uh, the kind of meeting point between uh, sex and cannibalism. And after that, she made uh, Friday Night, Vendredi Soir, which is a, just a lovely, very kind of sweet romance, one night stand. And she kind of, she looks at all those from a bunch of different angles. But Boat Travail is just such a such a bright, overwhelming work. It, it reminds me of, of uh, Bob Fosse in some ways in terms of the, the cutting, you know, with, with all that jazz. The, like, everything is the body and everything is how you manifest yourself in performance and, and you know, moving in a space around others. And that's, you know, every every theme and character tick is going to manifest itself that way. And it's just the sense of endless coiling and uncoiling that, you know, I would love I would love for Claire Denis to make a, a full-on musical. I don't think that's ever really in the work. Some of her early... Uh, she made some music videos, and she worked with uh, Jim Jarmusch, who, of course, also always has great musicians in his stuff. But that uh, that that sense of physicality combined with with graceful editing is just some of the best stuff in movies, of course. Yeah, um, Fosse, Fosse, I love. I've only actually seen two Fosse movies, but I, I, based on those alone, I'm like, why is this guy not talked about as like a pantheon film director? And I mean, the answer is obvious because he's thought of like you know a choreographer on the stage first. Um, but Bob Fosse was one of those frustrating people who was just inhumanly good at every single thing he did. Um, <laughs> no question. Like, like his, you know, his, as a movie director, that was probably his like third greatest talent and he's better than most people at it. Um, what is it? I, I, I remember I was talking about Bob Fosse with a friend of mine. Um, and he was like, Bob Fosse fucking pisses me off because like this guy's, you know, fourth greatest skill. I'm never going to be as good at him as that one. But yeah, no, all that jazz is a tremendous movie. Uh, I, I'm glad you brought the Denis compar- comparison there, since it makes a lot of sense. There's the sense of sweat and movement, and again, it is in the body. And I, I, I know I'm sounding like a parody of an academic, but you know, you kind of have to talk about bodies when you're talking about musicals and movies. And Beautrevai is has some very musical elements. Yeah, all that jazz. Uh, he understands editing as you know kind of the soul of cinema basically and uh i i read somewhere that he kind of avoids the music video editing you'd expect or even like sort of the stanley donan just kind of step back watch the uh what is it watch the dancers do their thing and he uses the edit as an extension of the body um, which is why all the musical numbers and all that jazz and cabaret are so disorienting and bizarre and endlessly watchable. Yeah, I think it's about the editing and the way he manages to capture really surreal art sequences as just an extension of everyday life for his particular characters, that there really is no border between this stuff. And that yeah, that ends up being the point of all that jazz is that he just, everyone keeps telling him, hey, what about a distinction between your art and your life? And he's like, I don't know what that is. I, I like and he, as, as you go back as he flashes back through his life and as he talks with the angel of death, like that that's the whole theme of the story. It's like his sex drive has been tied up with art from the very beginning. Since he had a sex drive, it's been part of performance and creativity for him. And as as, as much as his decisions over the course of the film are objectively awful, like you get the sense that he he doesn't know any other way to do the thing that's the only thing he knows how to do. And he, so he, he, even when he finishes his masterpiece, he just goes, well, just guess I'll die. 
because what what else are you going to accomplish? Yeah, I, I I do love the the autobiographical elements and all that jazz. How it was based on how he was simultaneously editing Lenny and I think directing Chicago. Um, there's a sequence in all that jazz. It's take off with us. Uh, that's a great sequence, and I like to think of it as a parody of the orgy scene in Pippin. I don't know how familiar you are with the stage plays. Um, oh, yeah, sure. No, I uh, I will look that up precisely because I watched that in All That Jazz and was like, what What am I watching? So I had, yeah. I had to do a little research on that. Yeah, the um, yeah, no, it does feel like a parody of the orgy scene in Pippin, which is also an extremely 70s, extremely uh, what the fuck am I looking at type thing. Um, I remember my school had to do a version, did a version of Pippin and they just had to change it into like a dance competition um because in the actual stage version they have like you know william cat just getting whipped or whatever um <laughs> yeah uh cabaret also i don't know what your cabaret take is but i think that one is you know sort of gotten underrated uh i think cabaret is fucking fantastic yeah i love it too that's again i it's been a few years since i've seen it all that jazz i rewatch fairly frequently it's it's i love it but uh yeah it's um it's, it stands out in such contrast, not to just like dump on, you know, uh, 2002 Chicago by contrast, but it's, it stands out in such contrast to a lot of modern movie, modern movie musicals in my head. And it's just, uh, it's, it's got a real fearlessness to it that I really admire. And um, it's, you know, it's just playing on different grounds on all that jazz, which is ultimately about itself. But uh, Cabaret moves is, is a, in, 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 you know, it's in deeper currents. Yeah, ca- Cabaret... Um... Yeah, uh, the, there's a line near the end of the movie from the song where they describe uh, something as the happiest corpse you've ever seen. That's Cabaret in a nutshell. Sure. Um, it is. It is a. It is basically a. You know, it's a love triangle story. It's a. It's you know this kind of love story between two people who are you know both deeply infatuated with each other and also completely incompatible. And uh, it kind of has this undercurrent, like with Under Rose of Sherbu, where it starts out. Simple enough, and then the uh, force, unlike World Sherbu, where it's the characters get more complex, the forces of history in Cabaret start emerging more and more into the foreground and become harder and harder for people to ignore. Um, what is it? It, it? It's a story of basically apocalyptic hedonism, and I, I have always found it incredibly powerful how, as the movie goes on, Uh, The nightmare that is, you know, the rising tide of fascism in Germany gets harder for both the audience and the characters to ignore. Um, You got the, obviously, Tomorrow Belongs to Me, which uh, I watched it with my girlfriend. As I pointed out, it's a huge break in the movie because, one, it's um, musically, the type of music they use is very different. Like, all the songs of the Kit Kat Club are very funk-influenced, whereas uh, Cabaret's uh, Tomorrow Belongs to Me is more of a classical show tune. Uh, sort of like an anthem. Yeah, no, and then there's that really horrifying scene. Uh, I forget what it's intercut with, but it's the scene where um, Natalia's dog gets murdered while um, something else happens. And, you know, this is sort of, you got to, I mean, as horrifying as that scene is, it's also kind of fascinating to see it as Fosse, you know, kind of slowly starting to test out the, you know, impressionistic editing he'd later go on to use in Lenny and all that jazz. Reality comes crashing in on fantasy in that in that uh, movie a lot of the times, but yeah, even though his uh, his techniques are getting uh, wilder and wilder as you go through that, and yeah, I think you know some of the maybe him not 
breaking the pantheon as much as he should, I think sometimes has to do with the reception of Star 80, where his uh, his uh, film career at least kind of nosedives. Maybe that left a bitter taste in some people's mouths. But you know, I think, as you say, it was it was a, it was a side gig, and he still he still outdid most professionals, which is a hell of an accomplishment. Yeah. So we're about a little over halfway through this, and I wanted I wanted to uh, change the direction of the conversation and say. So again, I don't like to think of this as an interview show, but I have two questions for whoever I'm talking to. And the second one is, uh, give us a hot take. Give us a give us an opinion that will really get, uh, you know, kind of, I don't want to say piss us off, but, you know, get get the conversation changed into more of an argumentative direction. Well, I think it's, you know, when we, there's a, the nostalgia for, for early aughts blockbusters is a, like the objectively flawed early aughts blockbusters fetishism, I think is a, is an interesting thing. And I think it's, I think it's this weird, weird collision of, of products nostalgia and also a objective recognition that like certain personality wrinkles are gone from those movies. Like, I think the, I think... I think like like vulgar tourism was kind of like a, a shot across the bow in terms of just a certain period of movie making where stuff like the Matrix sequels or Mission to Mars or the Star Wars prequels got made, and I I think the I I I, I think the the fetishization of that that particular era I think has has, has reached this this weird point where. It, the the discourse around some of those movies tend to just like turn negative qualities into the things to become fascinated by and this 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 and the way it reminds me of um the the like insane discourse around the show Sherlock towards the end of its run where the people who were still waiting for it to get good were focused on like every possible detail as you know regardless of quality and I think there's there's a there's there's an interesting generational quality to to people returning to to the early aughts blockbusters as this this weird plasticky era and i think that like so much of those debates revolve around like you know oh what, what's the actual quality of this movie but i don't even think that matters to the discussion like these are like these are s- strange fetish objects like you know like you, you know the, the the all the all the like the wheels they just pray to and grab from in fury road all the all, all the pale boys that they just like that's that's what those movies are like. I think that's that's what explains like you know the Star Wars prequels. I have my fondness for them, but it's insane that they have as much discourse and like you know reviving energy around them as they do. And it's that's it's 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 a, it's a, it's a strange thing that I love, but I think it's 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 completely divorced from quality. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that so obviously nostalgia works on like a twenty year basis. Um, most people say like. Obviously, the internet's changed that a lot, and you're sort of seeing, like, early 2010s nostalgia now, but nostalgia also does work on a bit of, like, a 20-year cycle, and since we're in 2020 now, we're starting to get uh, 2000s nostalgia, and part of that is for the really big uh, films, blockbusters of the early 2000s, and, you know, you have a lot of ones that are objectively really interesting, and movies that don't really get made anymore, like... Spider-Man trilogy, for example. Now, I I quite like Spider-Man two and three, um, and I, I think that my admiration for those movies is definitely in part because they are much wilder and much uh, better made. Because Sam Raimi is an actual filmmaker, um, but y- y- you definitely get the sense that for a lot of early two thousands blockbusters, it was sort of a weird transitional period, both with like the event of like 
early digital filmmaking and also just, you know, changes in the industry. Yeah, no, it, 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 these movies, like, you know, uh, it's been a while since I've seen the Star Wars prequels and it's been a while since I've seen the Matrix sequels, but, you know, those types of movies don't get made anymore. Um, they were auteur-driven projects um, that took an existing IP and basically did really weird stuff with it on a scale that would not pass anymore. And I do think it's fascinating. And I, with vulgar auteurism, there is the sense that stuff that's interesting or stuff that has uh, quality, like good qualities to it, sort of gets uh, over-venerated. Like, you know, Star Wars prequels, a lot of people point out how there's a surprising amount of like political complexity in those. And I can't vouch for that one way or another since I haven't seen them since I was a kid. And I think that's cool. And I think, and I'm you know, quite glad that uh, Lucas got interesting stuff in the movies, if that uh, opinion holds true. But I, I also think that just because he did doesn't mean you have to, like, ignore the parts of those movies that are kind of inept and, you know, the limits of that political, those political readings. Well, it's what fascinates me is that it's a weird mix of, like, the incentives of trash culture interacting with gigantic commercial properties in a way that isn't even kitsch really and it's 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 part of it as you say is, is the generational cycle of nostalgia but you know there's there's nothing particularly intimate about those products it's just uh it's 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 a a weird combination of of commercial and artistic interests that i think is is kind of fascinating to compare to i think a lot of the the projects made on equivalent budget levels now where i think yeah i think it's a in part a response to a relentless pacing and how uh, yeah. a lot of blockbusters feel completely schematic in terms of their beats and so i think there's there becomes an odd love for movies that fail to cohere properly you know what i mean like that's yeah. i think there's a, a fetish for blockbusters that that fall apart to a certain extent because it's a feeling of a different structure and I think yeah, there's, well, I think it, I think some people just cry out for that sometimes. Yeah, it, it's it's a feeling of you know movies, you know the Marvel movies, um, regardless of what you think of them. Um, I am somewhat hyperbolic in my dislike of them. I think that they are consistently mediocre, um, but they are like you know they're very competently put together at least on like a structural and storytelling level. They're just you know they are functional first. Their primary objective with maybe like a few exceptions, um, is that they need to work. They need to be a functioning product. And with that, a lot of idiosyncrasies get shaved off or really diluted. Um, even the, the better Marvel movies, I think, you see like a really idiosyncratic or vision sort of getting duking out with like, you know, the Disney suits vision, which is just to make, you know... Uh, Captain America, the first Avenger over and over again. Um, and, you know, in movies like Black Panther, you can see like a Ryan Coogler movie fighting with uh, the Disney execs vision of, you know, what the Black Panther movie should be. Um, and, and I think that, you know, it is a really frustrating feeling because it, you know, the monoculture elements, you know, both with the way prestige TV has crept into movies and uh, the way that, you know, we don't make mid-budget movies anymore and all of our big-budget movies are designed by committee. That feeling of, you know, personality, that feeling of, you know, swinging for the fences that you see in the Matrix sequels, in the Spider-Man movies, in the Star Wars prequels, uh, like it or not, doesn't exist anymore. And I, I, I 
do respect the desire to kind of return to an era where even blockbuster filmmaking could be bizarre and personal. Uh, I just don't think that the movies themselves are, if my memory serves, that good. Yeah, and I think I think you're you're right about the kind of the machine tooled quality being something people both obviously respond to, but I think are repulsed from at some level or just need an alternative to sometimes. And I think it's I think it's you know the sensation that the Marvel model and movies that follow along along those lines are just so built around the audience, and there's just no nothing stands on its own two feet. Even even among the better movies, it's 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 entirely geared around keeping the brand going and keeping the audience in seats. And I think I think people, I think the the, the response to that is to pursue movies that that don't pursue your interest act like actively or that that seem so incongruous with their budget level and what's supposed to be a crowd appeal but seem insular projects made for the pleasure of the filmmaker and almost nobody else and i i think those those acquire a retroactive sheen compared to movies that are made entirely about the audience experience at the most you know broad possible level i i think that the year text for all of this is definitely miami vice um, that movie has an sure. absolutely gargantuan budget. It's not quite at the level of, like, you know, later Pirates of the Caribbean movies or Marvel movies, but it has, like, a impressively sized budget. It's tied to an existing, um, what is it, uh, you know, IP, too, the Miami Vice series. And that movie does whatever the fuck it wants to. Um, I have no idea how, uh, studio execs looked at, like, the assembly cut of that movie. I was like, sure, well, let's work with this. Um, Miami Vice, uh, you know, like it or not, is very much, first and foremost, a way for Michael Mann to experiment with burgeoning digital technology. Uh, you know, digital filmmaking around 2006, that one is one that was finally starting to, like, actually look like movies. Uh, before that, you have stuff like, or no, The Celebration, sorry. Celebration, that's a great movie, but it looks like dog shit. Um, so does Dancer in the Dark. Like, Dancer in the Dark was shot on digital cameras, and it looks grainy as hell and ugly. By 2006 and 2007, you have filmmakers like David Fincher and, uh, what is it, Michael Mann, who are, you know, finally finding a way to make digital into its own aesthetic and actually look good. And uh, I, I see, um, what is it... Uh, Miami Vice is basically a continuation of the stylistic shakeup he brought to Collateral um, and possibly Ali. I haven't seen Ali. And finding ways to see, like, what can I do with digital film? And he sort of brings it to a classic Michael Mann cops and robbers story. And uh, I think it's interesting. And I think that the reason why a lot of people gravitate that movie so strongly is for the reasons we've suggested above. That movie is uncompromising. It's Michael Mann just doing what he wants to do. He takes, you know, his existing toolkit and you know, tinkers with it a bit through digital filmmaking and, you know, changing up the storytelling structure a little bit. Do I think that the movie wholly works? Maybe a little. I, I'm, I think it's good. I, I obviously like it a lot more than, again, if memory serves, like the Star Wars prequels. And I think it, I think it was definitely unfairly written off at the time. Uh, you'll, you might disagree. I, I remember we've talked about Miami Vice before on Twitter, but I, I don't think I ever got your full take on it. But one way or another, I think that the key to sort of understanding how this recent infatuation, both with like 2000s culture and, you know, vulgar auteurism in general is, you know, through that movie. I think that's a great, yeah, movie to kind of build this idea around. 
because it's on on one hand it is uncompromising artistically in terms of having its own complete approach to uh to digital video and to its relentless forward march editing and its weird approach to time but it's also aggressively disinterested in plot and character to the point where it starts to seem like a prank uh especially in you know coming back after black hat you, you know you, you have you have that sort of sensation with with Miami Vice sometimes and I think I think there's part of us that loves the sensation of a lot of money being wasted. You know, regardless of how cynical we may feel about Hollywood, I think there's part of us that loves that feeling, the sense that a lot of money was put towards something and the people who put that lot of money towards it, this is not quite what they envisioned. And there's there's something, yeah, like kind of exhilarating about about imagining a, you know, an investor and a producer watching Miami Vice and you know, you can see the clear artistry at work, but also he has he's deliberately chopped to hell your sensation of of where you are and you can you can say oh, so it's a, in the fashion of of Wong Kar Wai or Lucretia Martel but obviously those filmmakers are working in very different contexts and Michael Mann kind of knew what he was doing with this one and yeah I think that 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 engenders a very self conscious fascination it it, it kind of reminds me of stories of when um, Mark Hollis premiered uh, Laughing Stock to like you know various yeah. like you know at, took at listening parties and everyone was just like vaguely confused about what the hell they were listening to and he was just like I made what I wanted to fuck off um, uh, yeah Talk yeah. Talk's a great comparison I and mean, they went from awesome but very eighties synthy you know somewhat dated balladry. And then, you know, just transformed into something weird and completely else in a way, you know, you can still see the elements of their previous work. But yeah, I think that, that we, yeah, that's, it's that fascination for kind of mutated fallen pop that I think it's in, in the movies often gets translated to those, you know, blockbusters that go somewhat awry. Yeah, as for Miami Vice, um, I, I, I don't quite get the reaction people have to that one like okay i get liking the movie a lot and i do like the movie since you know it is beautiful uh the digital photography and the editing is still bracing today um obviously it's got some absolutely terrific sequences uh the shootout shootouts are appropriately really grisly um uh, it's michael mann making a cops and robbers story so you can only go so wrong there um sure but like, when people describe this, like, overwhelming emotional reaction to it, I just don't understand that on some primal level, because it's like, again, I don't think even Michael Mann was terribly interested in, you know, bringing out this sort of emotional, visceral reaction to people like he does in, you know, Heat or Thief. Uh, I think he is primarily interested in, you know, I hate to say it, but bodies in motion. And... <laughs> Yeah, and I think, again, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that. Like, I I think that a lot of great filmmakers aren't terribly interested in, like, you know, human stories. We talked about Kubrick for, you know, half the show, and I think after Passive Glory, he decided that human stories weren't his thing. And he's, you know, obviously one of the greats. Uh, I I just don't, I, I feel like when people describe Miami Vice as this, like, swooning romantic story, I am just like... I don't get it on some level. I respect the people who can get it, but I just, I, I like, you know, you bring up the Wong Kar Wai comparison, you know, there's obviously some stylistic ticks they share, you know, sort of the jittery editing, you know, the really impressionistic, um, what is it, storytelling, the bobbing and swaying of camera work. But, you know, Wong Kar Wai is, you know, very, very, he is a romantic at heart. He 
cares a lot about these stories of, you know, tenuous connections and, you know, people struggling to form one serious, genuine human connection in like a hyper-connected and, you know, isolating world. And I don't think Michael Mann shares those interests at this point in his career. Michael Mann, I think, is more of a technician. And I do think his Miami Vice takes place in the same kind of world as Wong Kar Wai's movies. You know, that yeah, that ever-evolving, technologically-driven present where pop culture is around you and kind of immediately accessible, but it's just kind of repetitive and the people slip past you. And yeah, I think Miami Vice, I think people project a lot into it because it's designed, I think, as, you know, the impression of a great romance happening just over there, you know, in the corner of your eyes. Did you see it? Nope, sorry, moving on, quickly. You know, it's the, the, the shot I love in it that people point to a lot is where they're in the middle of this dense, jargon-heavy scene interrogating a dude, and Colin Farrell just stops and loses interest and glances out the window, and the camera cuts to, like, this beautiful ocean horizon he's looking at, and then back to his eyes, brimming with some kind of emotion, and then the scene continues. And it's like, so that's what, you know, you, you watch the plot fall apart for this this really evocative, memorable character moment that means something, and, you know, I, I, I really appreciate that as an experience, but talking about it like it's a Malick movie, which is what a lot of people seem to do, and I get why, it's Colin Farrell. The New World was just like six months before this movie. But, like, it's not, it, it doesn't have that kind of, yeah, emotional tearing at my heart imprint. It's, yeah, it's not in the mood, it's not in the mood for love, you know. It doesn't, it doesn't hit like those eye flickers in the mirror in that movie. I, 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 I do really admire how, you know, my friend pointed this out to me, um, what is it, who went on a Michael Mann binge, and he watched Miami Vice, uh, not know, like, you know, he, he is very uh, detached from, like, film discourse online, and he just kind of watched Miami Vice, and he was kind of impressed by the way the movie just stops for, like, 30 minutes to focus on the love story between Colin Farrell and Gong Li, um, and... I, I also appreciate that, too. Like, I love it when movies are digressive and just kind of, you know, if they've got a story that they're telling, they just kind of, like, take whatever detour they feel necessary. Um, you know, part of the appeal of, you know, Rio Bravo is that it's a pretty straightforward sure. siege movie. It's like, you know, what, you know, Assault on Precinct 13, which would come later. But it takes its time and it kind of focuses on getting to know all these people and just does whatever it feels like and is in no hurry to arrive at the conclusion. And I respect that a lot. I just think that, again, the romance between Colin Farrell and Gong Li is, you know, an impression of a great romance. It is uh, very much indulged in itself for its own sake rather than some, like, greater romantic feeling. And I, I don't disagree with the people who describe, um, what is it, Michael Mann is a romantic. Uh, you, you can't watch Thief and Heat and not think that he is, or, you know, Manhunter. And think that he isn't a uh, romantic of some sorts. But I, I think that when he was making this movie, it's just, if his interests were there, it just doesn't come off as strongly as, you know, the doomed romance between in Thief or uh, the sort of moment where that sticks out really strongly to me from Heat, stronger than, you know, all the romantic aspects of uh, Miami Vice, is when... Uh, what is it, Robert De Niro and his love interests are, you know, kind of perched on the balcony at the end of the movie. And he just like, you know, talks about how, you know, uh, well, what if we've got one shot, you know, what if, what if, but it, it's a really powerful and potent moment. And I don't think that it registers as strongly in Miami Vice. And this does sound like for me, at least that it's like a Miami Vice bashing session, but I do like the movie and I <laughs> appreciate it more than I don't. 
I, I think it's a really impressive movie, and I, I, I'm glad it's gotten some recognition in the past couple of years. It can't compare to Heat in terms of gravitas and, and character and that, that kind of uh, tragic structure. And it, it, you know, back to back to Wong Kar Wai, you know, obviously Fallen Angels was spun out of Chunking Express. And in the mood for love, you know, he had countless versions of that one that he edited down to that given shape. And uh, 204, 2046 just evolves kind of as an endless spool of here's what's potentially going on and here's what I'm imagining and here's a fantasy projection of myself and what I think is the future. And, uh, you know, Miami Vice functions as a kind of, uh, kind of, it, it feels like a bunch of leftover drafts from an endless series that Michael Mann was making. You know what I mean? It feels like he's uh, a, a bunch of spools cut together in that kind of obsessive way. And it, I think that, I think the the specifics, I think, or, or what's what's missing by comparison to like a, a Wong Kar Wai film? Because you know you have the same kind of theme of of you know endless just people uh, bouncing off each other and chance and fate in, in in Chunking Express, but you know the 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 details and the characters themselves are much more lived in, and you know the, the yeah a lot of a lot of similar you know scenes and CD bars and and wandering around, but yeah, I think I think you feel much more rooted in the character in those. Yeah. Also, and this will make people mad. Wonk, uh, Wonkar Wise taste in music is so much better than Michael Mann's. I'm sorry, but like Michael, Michael Mann, just like he's like, all right, we got this really romantic moment. Got the perfect choice of music, Audio Slave. Just, I, I don't. It's again. Well, that's my fascination with these kinds of movies because it's not quite camp. Like, I mean, that's you know, Zack Snyder yeah. is a whole other discussion, but he's he's not far removed from this for me, where it's like, oh, this is almost kitschy. But not yeah. really, so it, it it falls into this crevasse where it's like, this is clearly artsy, but also so po-faced that I don't know what I'm looking at anymore. And that's fascinating to yeah. me. Yeah, yeah, I, I, th- I think that sort of, um, and I, I do get it since, we, you know, with a lot of, you know, quote-unquote vulgar auteurists, that, um, that sort of intersection between uh, mainstream filmmaking and, uh, you know, like, you know, big-budget filmmaking and kitsch, where you get this almost you get this sort of weird tension between you know kitschier elements and you know studio elements and i i think that tension does really fascinate people and it does fascinate me too it's just not like enough i think if there's going to exist that weird tension between disparate elements in a movie there has to be something you know grounding it other than just the tension itself which is where i split with a lot of people but yeah no i i like how you describe it as not quite kitsch because the the kitschy elements are there like you know again in Miami Vice, but the it's made by uh, it's a huge budget film. It's um, and it's just not both like the aesthetic is too you know new and revolutionary, and just other elements make it so it can't quite fully be in that territory. And I think that um, you know it's a similar thing with the Star Wars prequels, where uh, it's it's too bizarre and too unwielding and complex to be like full full tilt camp and i think that sort of tension fascinates people yeah it's the search for the you know the termite and the white elephant to go back to manny farber terms and it's it's i think it's but it's it's it fascinates me as a search for something resembling you know john waters like some you know an element where trash comes together with the real intention and immersion or even in a a more pop way like almodovar like you know it's but but and what that's that's where that search you know sh- should lead you because that's where those all those elements come together, 
And yeah, what fascinates me about those those blockbusters is just it's just a just a suggestion of that. And you know, I think dancing around the the, the missing core element of a lot of those movies is sex and dealing with sex in, a, in an actual adult interested way. And you know, Miami Vice does try to do that. Because, like you say, it does it does stop the movie dead for the sex, but you know it's also Colin Farrell with that hair <laughs> set to Audio Slaves, so I'm not still quite not romantically immersed. But like you know, that's that's the that's the the, the key element to a kind of the the fearlessness that would make those kitschy elements work, and that's that's kind of missing from. And you know, you could say the same thing about the MCU uh, that you know the, the the way it dances around sex makes it you know impossible to quite ever reach that point. Yeah, there. Well, yeah, it's. I think what it's missing, and a lot of people will kill me for saying this about Miami Vice, but I think what it's missing is not sex, but eroticism, basically. And you know, there's not a lot of sex in Wong Kar Wai movies. There's a sex scene in Happy Together. There's a sex scene in Twenty Forty Six, but like, and there's like, you know, some you know stuff approaching that, and like Chung Ting Express and Falling Angels. <laughs> but it's 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 like it's a lot of the tension in those movies is like erotic like those movies feel sexual even if there isn't a ton of sex actually happening in them um what is it and i i think that yeah like you said uh there there is with miami vice there is sex but you know and again a lot of people will get upset with me for this but it's not a terribly erotic movie it's just it's a very you know that movie feels divorced from human romance to me and I get that is the appeal for some people, and I, I I don't like dislike it, but that element that you know makes Wong Kar Wai movies in particular so transcendental for me is just not really there. But yeah, no, I I, I think, and I that is a problem too with the MCU movies, but MCU movies don't even have eroticism or sex. So. Right, like that's not even uh, you know high up on the list of concerns. It is it is something that 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 interests me because it's you know. You, you know, when you talk about just wanting a more kind of personal charge to these movies, that th- that's an element when you when you go back to to the seventies is is always present as this this sense of of sex and a danger around sex that I think I think one car movies capture accurately too because there's a lot of you know implied threatened or sometimes shown violence in his movies too. You know, not as much as Michael Mann, maybe, but it's there, and I think that that's yeah, that 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 kind of gets neutered in a lot of other movies at that level. And I, I going back to the whole two thousands blockbuster discussion is that I think a lot of people, um, and you know, honestly, myself included here, um, I'm in agreement with the with the VAs on this one is that a lot of people like seeing a director's sort of personal neurosis manifest in a movie or an artistic vision that's very neurotic manifest in a movie, like. I've been on a Hitchcock binge recently, oh, and sure. every single one of his movies has some intense psychosexual, shall we say, problems in it. And that does fascinate, because you kind of see this guy working out his own demons, and his own insecurities, and his own obsessions, and his own, you know, sexuality through all of these movies. Um, and that element is there in... 2000s blockbuster movies so you have you know like for example uh like fucking spider-man like you have a spider-man movie that's horny that's not supposed to happen so like it whether or not the spider-man movies are good which i'd argue they are is almost besides the point because you get the sort of fascination of this idiosyncratic neurotic vision manifesting in a fucking spider-man movie 
Um, and I think the same is true for the Star Wars prequels. Like, you know, you have all of George Lucas's obsessions and fascinations and neuroses manifesting in, you know, prequels to the biggest movies ever made. And I think that fascination is enough for some people. And I, I kind of respect that, even if I don't quite agree. It's the problem play fascination, you know, from Shakespeare, the the insane tonal shifts that you have in um, Merchant of Venice and Winter's Tale. And, you know, mm. those those ones aren't generally held up in high esteem as the more kind of tonally pure works. But I think, you know, people people like people like rebellions in tone to a certain extent, as long as it doesn't, you know, shock us too much. And, you know, uh, even even more than ruthlessness in editing, modern blockbusters are so controlled in tone because, again, they're all built around what you're going to think of them. And having having, you know, wild tonal misfires is like the 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 reddit movies 101 thing you're not supposed to have in your movies that makes movies bad is is when the tone shifts too much but there's there's you know obviously it's impossible to have that kind of imprinting of neuroses process you were talking about without those wild shifts because that's what yeah. being neurotic is so yeah, i think it, i think people it, gravitate to that it, it's why like nicholas cage for example was such a laughingstock for such a wild time since he is a you know he is an actor that carries those wild tonal shifts on his own a lot of the time um, he is capable of, like, delivering, you know, just this insane wild shit one scene and, like, a genuinely kind of tragic moment the next scene. Like, you know, take Face Off, which I watched recently. Um, for the first half of that movie, he is... It is some of the campiest stuff in Nick Cage's career, and that is saying something. Um, and then, like, once he gets his personality shifted, he has to, like... talk. He kind of has to, like, underplay himself and be more quiet and withdrawn and then, you know, when he does drugs, he, he goes back, like, kind of briefly back to the Cage persona. And I think that he throws a lot of people because, you know, as like you said, you know, the 101 thing is that you're not supposed to throw, like, you're not supposed to throw tone around like that. And he just kind of does it on his own. Um, and I, I think that's why he's one of the best actors of the sound era is his ability to kind of drive the movie almost through sheer force of, you know, acting and through sheer force of, he's almost able to control the tone of movie, by, the movie by his lonesome. Um, uh, and I, I think that that throws a lot of people. I think, uh, generally speaking, you know, comfort leans to movies that want you to laugh with them, and movies that are fine with you laughing at them. I think engender both a lot of discomfort, but also extreme devotion. And I think I think people latch onto that, even though that can because that's the thing, you know, a, a good a, a big tonal shift can mean you're a fearless director and actor moving together into new territory, or it can mean you don't know what you're doing. And I think people can respond to that e both equally. And I think you know it's 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 not that dissimilar to you know the process of when you you know you put Exorcist or Psycho back in theaters and people laugh. And it's like you gotta you gotta allow room for that for that response and that kind of catharsis because it's also just about ner nervousness because like even if Psycho and Exorcist or like Blue Velvet don't like shock you you know deep in your moral core anymore those movies still make you anxious and and and, and laughing at them is a way to relieve them and I think you know there's there's uh, people oddly respond to a sense of anxiety sometimes in, in those movies and, and seek that out yeah. Um, so we've been going for an hour, so I'll just start to wrap this up now. But uh, one more thing before we go is, do you have any movie, just any movie, some, you know, uh, preferably one that most people haven't seen, but, you know, any movie that you'd like to recommend to our audience? 
let's see. What have I uh, watched from? Well, oh, okay. So if you were, um, this is a this is a voyage. But the, if you have the Criterion uh, channel, uh, Satin Tango, Satin Tango from Bellatar just dropped on there. Hmm. It's seven and a half hours, but yeah, uh, it's it's glorious and also bleakly funny in some ways. We were talking about Kubrick and just some of the most pure incredible camera work you'll ever see i watched it uh in, in college and have never forgot a lot of it um you know watch it watch it into over the course of a few nights watch it in bits but uh if, yeah if you have access to it or if you want to sign up for that basis yeah. i recommend it on that alone because it's it's a it's a pretty rare movie and hard to find but it's 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 uncompromising for sure so yeah check that one out if you're uh, for something long yeah, I'll, I'll give uh, audience a recommendation. Um, I watched this last night, or revisited it. Um, it it's, it's not like a rare movie, but uh, I think a lot of people have kind of slept on it due to this director's towering career. If you haven't seen Hitchcock's The 39 Steps, please do that. Um, it is basically, it's up there with Seven Samurai in one of those movies where it's just the DNA of modern entertainment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know... The 39 Steps also, though, kind of, like, outpaces a lot of, you know, entertainment that came after it. Uh, it's more efficient. It's funnier. Um, it's way more clever. Uh, it's way hornier, too, if you want to talk about, you know, <laughs> horny stuff in that movie. I clipped this on Twitter, but one of my favorite bits in the movie is when the main character is filing down handcuffs uh, with a nail clipper while simultaneously, you know, fake confessing to all of these murders that he didn't do because the person he's with believes he's a murderer. So he's just sort of like, you know, like, yeah, yeah, my granddad was Bluebeard, you know? And he Hitchcock frames it in such a way that it looks like he's, like, jacking off. And this is, it's Hitchcock. It is 100% intentional of that course. that's happening. That's great. Yeah. And I, I remember the first time I saw the movie, I was like, how did the fuck did he get away with this? This is 1935. Um uh yeah no it it it's movies filled with all sorts of like delightful little uh dirty jokes like that like all the sequences where he kind of points his gun at the at the woman he's with uh you know is framed in a very phallic way um and plus it's just a blast it's hilarious it's really entertaining there's so many great jokes it's got one of my favorite bits of physical comedy when he um what is it has to escape the train he's on and uh lee uh takes a door out that you don't normally take out. I'll leave it at that. Mm. But yeah, no, it's it's a complete blast. It's only like 86 minutes. Um, if you're willing to a lot for some, you know, plot holes and improbable plot elements, it's it's kind of hard to beat in terms of pure entertainment. Anyways, uh, but I think that's going to do it. Uh, Emmett, do you have a... Would you like to plug anything before we go? Sure. So you can find me at Poor Quentin, uh, Q-U-E-N-T-Y-N on Twitter. I do a podcast, the, the Nada Podcast, with uh, Jeff Hartline, a.k.a. Brendan Beefish, and we go through the A Song of Ice and Fire, the books that uh, uh, were adapted for Game of Thrones, one chapter at a time. So you can find us over at Podbean, NataCast, A-S-O-I-A-F. And uh, yeah, we, we have a blast over there, and then, yeah, on Twitter, I just I just talk whatever. So uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, I, I always enjoy the chance to, to talk movies with someone else who loves them as much as I yeah. do. Yeah, if you're if you're a, if you're a big fan of uh, the the HBO series Game of Thrones, particularly the last couple of seasons, um, then yeah, you'll you'll love this <laughs> show that's dedicated to uncritically praising Dan Benioff and uh, what is it, DB Weiss? Um, yeah, at all times. No, yeah, <laughs> no. If you're if you're if you're interested in Song of Ice and Fire at all, um, do check out um, uh, Jeff and Emmett's podcast, um, where you know they're they're doing they're 
they're doing uh, the same treatment that we're doing to Family Guy for something that's obviously just as important. The, um, the, Song of the Ice two and Fire. most sacred totems of American culture, side by side. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. No. Uh, yeah. No. Seth, Seth MacFarlane and uh, uh, George R. R. Martin frequently cite each other as important influences. <laughs> it's just intertextual and metatextual. It's yeah. wonderful. It's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, but uh, do check out Emmett. And Emmett, thanks for coming on. Uh, this My is pleasure. hopefully the first of. Many uh, such discussions with various uh, people interested in film. Um, if you liked this kind of change up from our more bad TV driven um, show, then uh, subscribe to us on Patreon um, where uh, I haven't figured it out yet, but some of these episodes will be Patreon exclusive uh, for five bucks a month. You'll be able to see me talk with more smart people. And um, yeah, no, that's going to do it. All right. Bye everyone.